The title of my message this weekend is The Almost Father. I have looked forward to giving this message for uh, many months, and in some ways, I've looked forward to giving it for many years, and for reasons that I'm going to uh, get into, but this is a message, actually, that I was scheduled and planning on giving the weekend of June 8th, and uh, this was going to be perfect because my my wife Jennifer and I um, were expecting our first child, a daughter, and she was to be born the next weekend. And so this was gonna, this was going to be so beautiful because it was the weekend before Father's Day. So this would be the almost Father's Day message, and all and also the almost father message because I was almost going to be a father, days from being a father. So do you see, do you see the beauty of that? How it would have just been so wonderfully, it would just flowed so beautifully. And uh, so all the plans were set. Everything was going to go down perfectly. And then she came a little early. I woke up on June 6th. That was Thursday. And I kind of opened my eye and Jennifer was standing in the, in the bedroom. And I said, are you okay? And she said, I think I'm having contractions. And I said, well, since when? She says, 2.30. And uh, I said, are you sure? And she goes... I, I think they are that. And so up we go. We made calls. And they, you know, they said, uh, bring her in. So we had all our stuff, you know, set, ready to go. We took that stuff. We threw it in the minivan. Yes, I bought a minivan. <laughs> it's a sure sign that uh, fatherhood has firmly implanted when... You've got the swagger wagon in the garage. And <laughs> so we threw the things in the van and we headed for the hospital. And I'll be honest, though, really the whole way I, I'd heard about this, you know, so many times pre-labor and Braxton Hicks, this kind of stuff. And so I'm like, ah, we're going to get there and they're going to go home. It's going to be days. And I really needed that because I wanted to give this message this weekend. <laughs> and so I needed her not to come. So we get to the hospital and uh, they, you know, Check things out, and, and they said, you're having a baby today. And so there we were, and it was like, here we go. <laughs> and indeed, we did have a baby uh, on June 6th, and here she is. Here's our little cutie patootie. <laughs> is that not precious? I'm just saying. <laughs> You just want to kiss her all over is how if you just, just eat her up. She is just so, yeah, she is really cute. So Kira Lee Camille DeWitt, seven pounds, 13 ounces, 19 inches long. And I was there for the whole birth. I um, was in the room and I have to say that Jennifer did amazing. I mean, to be there and to see how all that happens and what a mom has to do to to give birth. I mean, it just like she soared in my estimation. I also want to say, having been there, how overjoyed I am to be a man. I mean, this is... (laughs) Wow. So whatever happened way back when, when God decided that I would be a man, praise the Lord is what I want to say. (laughs) Would not want to go through that. So... We announced uh, the name to our our family first, but just so we don't have to tell the story a thousand times, I will just tell you about uh, this this name, Kira Lee Camille DeWitt. Like many couples, we you know when we found out that we were pregnant, we, we went we went out to dinner to celebrate and to get our sanity back, and uh, the right away we began thinking about what are we going to name the child. We didn't know if it was a boy or girl at that point, and so just I mean the first thing right away we're thinking about is the name. And we're on our, our phones, you know, on babyname.com. Well, what about this? What about that? And so we began to compile a list of names, a hot list of names. If we heard a good name, we threw it in the list and began talking and thinking. But you got months to decide, you know. So um, we looked at books, you know, 10,000 baby name books. And along the way, we had an ultrasound. They said, you're having a girl. So that kind of allowed us to focus more on the girl names. Well... Uh, this past year, I had a 
a pastor in England that uh, read my book and reached out to me, wanted to talk to me. He was doing a dissertation for some advanced degree over there on the subject of beauty. And so we began to have a little bit of dialogue and got to know each other a little bit. Well, in the course of getting to know him, uh, we found out that his wife's name was Kira Lee. And we both were like, oh, that's such a cute name. Let's throw it in the list. So we threw it in the list. But we had some other names that, frankly, I would have thought that we were probably going to, you know, early on, we were like, oh, we like these names. And, but over the course of time, Kira Lee began moving up the charts uh, until like just two weeks before the birth. We were like, we got to decide here. And what about, what about Kira Lee? And so we ended up, we said, it was just so cute. I mean, we just all went elegant and feminine and all that. We just decided that's what we're going to do. And Camille is Jennifer's middle name and her mom's middle name and his grandma's middle name. So that was a lock from the beginning. There was no debating the middle name. Um, so that's how, that, that's how her name um, came to be, Kira Lee uh, Camille. So she came early and uh, kind of in that way messed up my plans. Maybe that's one of the early lessons in fatherhood is that children really don't care about your... <laughs> schedule whatsoever. They're going to do pretty much what they're going to do when they want to do it. So I should have known though, because uh, she does have Dutch blood in her. And as, as all the Dutch know, we are never late and most often early. So she's showing her Dutchiness in that. But I was, I really wanted to do this message, the almost father. And so what I've decided to do is that I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm, I'm, I'm simply subtitling it uh, the almost father, uh, what I was going to say. Okay. So what I was going to say is, is what I'm going to say and we'll see how it goes. I want to begin by just telling you my story with, with this. And I know that many of you know this story. I've pastored here so long. Many of you have lived this story with me, but not everybody does. And, um, there, you know, radio, online, stuff like that. I can make this clear for everybody regarding my own personal journey into, into fatherhood. And by the way, I also want to make this comment that uh, some of you would argue you became a father when, when she was conceived. You know, so you're not technically the almost father. Okay. <laughs> Just go with it, all right? Just go with it. I concede your point. My story really goes back to when I was a boy and the family that I grew up in my mom and my dad, both of their fathers died when they were uh, young children. And even in my mom's mom, she remarried and her stepfather died when she was 12. And, so, and then her mom died when she was 16. And so there's just a lot of, uh, in both of my parents, less than sort of ideal or you know, the way that, that you maybe would, would want it to be. And I think what that did for both my dad and my mom is that because my dad grew up in a single, basically a single parent home, uh, he was a very motivated dad. He didn't have, he had a dad, but he didn't know him really, but he wanted to be a great dad. And my mom, uh, having grown up without a consistent fatherly presence, was very much wanting a strong male leader in, in the home. So they were on the same page with that. And that was a blessing then to me and to my, my siblings uh, to have that. And I hope that there is a truth even in that. And I say this for your encouragement. But the training of good dads begins when they are sons of good dads. Good dads tend to have sons who end up being good dads. That's not always true. But boy, can you learn a lot from having a good dad. And on the other side, there also is a comfort in this. My dad did not have a dad, and yet he was a good dad. And so you see how God can work in either scenario to bring about good. Well, Christian teaching is that uh, you wait to become um, a, a dad until you're, you're married. And as you know, that took a long time for me. I did not get married until I was 44 years old. That's just this last August. And what that meant for me in the course of time is that I, I just, I had a growing yearning to be a dad. I would say in my 20s, I wasn't so worried about it. In my 30s, I began to kind of like, oh, you know, that'd be 
that'd be really great. About when I hit 40, it really began at the holidays and at Mother's Day, Father's Day. And honestly, here I am up here dedicating all these children when we do these children's dedications. And we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. I've handed out baton after baton after baton, all these letters and all the rest. And as I'm passing those things down the line, I'm seeing these parents all smiling and, you know, they got the cute kid and all that. I'm thinking to myself, oftentimes, when is it going to be my turn? And those of you that want to have children and don't, I know, I know that, I know that feeling. I know what it's like to be single and uh, to want a spouse and to want a family. And in a way, I know what it's like to be, to be married even and to not have that element in your life as you would like. I was the bachelor pastor for a very long time. And I feel like this is, you know, so often when it comes to these categories, marriage, family, children, it really is where the uh, rubber of faith hits the reality of the road, doesn't it? A family that is a couple that's struggling with infertility, a single person that wants to be married uh, but isn't. You know, these are the things that in a broken world, life oftentimes is not the way that you want it to be or not the way that you think it ought to be, or not the way that you think if God was fair, he would allow it to be. It just is the way that it is. And we can either decide that God is good and God is sovereign and God can redeem any situation, or we sink ourselves in some kind of despair. I have felt myself go down that path. I know it well. I also want to say this, uh, in this part of the story, is that all too often the church, in America I think in particular, tends to paint a portrait of what perfect and ideal is. Like like everybody that's a good Christian is married, and everybody that's a good Christian, they have kids, and they all have a well-behaved dog at home, and everything's ideal and perfect, and we, we all smile, and we have this sort of perfect American Christian evangelical family. And I have always chafed at that, and I hope that you've not heard that from me over the years, because I was the bachelor pastor, and everybody knew I wanted to get married, and yet it didn't happen. My life was not the way that I wanted it to be, or I thought that if God was maybe good, that it, that it would be. And we actually do a disservice to our core message when we give the idea that all the really good Christians have all those things just the way that they want. When in reality, the church is called to minister in a broken world in all the broken categories and to love everybody in those categories and to point them to a good God in the midst of their yearning and their unfulfilled desires. That is our core message. And further, I would say that when we give the idea that these things are really the sources of happiness and joy in life, uh, it undermines the other core message, which is that Christ is our greatest treasure. If you remember in my bachelor pastor message, I said about Jennifer, I said, I'm not looking to Jennifer to be my ultimate happiness. And similarly, in the almost father message, I want to say, I'm not looking to Kira Lee to be my ultimate source of happiness. Why? Because they didn't die for me. They're not my savior. They're not God. And I am not, I'm made to have my happiness in my creator and in a right relationship with him through his son. And that's the message of the church. And so I just want to say that we need to remain a congregation or even become more of this where we are okay in the messiness of life and in the broken categories that so many of us are in. And to not in any way insinuate that only if you have this perfect sort of look, then you have the favor of God. Jesus was single and never had children. And is the ultimate man who ever lived. Now in this message, I want to share five longings of the almost father five longings of the almost father and i'll just this i'll just say this is message is more biography than exposition and we'll be back in first john next week and so um we'll get into more of our rhythm here but this is a special message for me as your pastor and something that i want to share uh kind of out of my heart and out of my life and i trust that it will be a blessing uh to to all of us 
and especially move us towards a deeper appreciation of what it means to be a dad. Longing number one. By God's grace, to be a biblical father to my daughter. By God's grace, to be a biblical father to my daughter. I want that. Now, it begs a certain question, doesn't it? What does it mean to be a biblical father, right? If I'm going to be a biblical father to her, what does it mean to be a biblical uh, biblical father? And so let's just talk about this a moment because fatherhood is interwoven in the human story from the beginning. In fact, it is part of the story even before creation. If we really want to understand what it means to be a father, we don't look at Adam and Eve. We look at God. And within the Godhead... We have this triunity of persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And from, even, from's not the right word, since time began and before that, in eternity past, there has been a member of the Trinity who had the name Father and who related to the Son and the Spirit in a fatherly way. God the Father, who is the head of the Trinity and who exercises that headship in a fatherly way. So we see then in the Godhead that fatherhood is a title, it is a role, and it is a relationship. He is called God the Father by self-revelation. He functions as head of the, tri- of the triunity, and he is in relationship with the Spirit and the Son in a fatherly way. So, we find then what God does and what, he, what, he, what he's done in so many different ways that when he made the world and he created the world and he set up humanity and he set up personhood and he set up relationships that he built into the fabric of this creation reflections, little mirrors of what he is like. And we, God is Father, God the Father. And how did God build into this creation that self-identity? And the answer to that is human fatherhood. It is to be a dad, is to reflect what, how God relates to the Son and to the Spirit. In fact, let's take a look at this. Where does fatherhood begin? Genesis 1, this is what he said to Adam and Eve. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see from the beginning that human sexuality and human reproductive capacity is not something that just happened. It is something that God designed and blessed. In fact, he looks over his whole creation, including human sexuality and human reproduction, and what does he call it? Very good. It is very good. So to be a dad is sacred. It is holy because it reflects the fatherliness of God the Father. And by divine command and statement and sanction, to be a dad is to fulfill what is known as the cultural mandate, that we would multiply and fill the earth. So we can say it this way. God wanted Adam and Eve to have kids. He wanted them to have kids. In fact, the survival of the human race depended upon Adam and Eve having children. And God called it very good. And the Bible over and over again talks about family and parenting and parenting children and affirms it over and over again that it is good, that children are good. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him, with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a blessing, the Bible says. They are not a liability. They're not a drag. They're not just ankle biters crawling around your family room like large insects. They are... They are holy. They are good. They are, in the eyes of God, a sign of blessing. We find this even in the moral code of the scriptures, the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments, the first four, all deal with man's relationship to God. The fifth one is the first of the next 
those six that deal with human relationships. You say, well, I'm sure that the first human relationship that God would want to deal with would be husband and wife. No, it's not. Man and government. No, it's not. What is it? It is parent and child. Here's what it says. Fifth commandment. Kids, listen to this. And the parents said, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. Honor them. The word there, it means give weight to. Hold them high. Hold them in high regard. Honor your father and your mother. We find this with Jesus. In a society that saw children as uh, inconvenient and sort of things to be shooed away, like the disciples were doing, Jesus did not do that. He said, let the little children come to me. And in Mark 9, he says, this is what happened. Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That is a profound statement. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Children are a kind of litmus test of whether or not we see humanity and personhood through the eyes of God. They are small, these kids. They have little to offer financially, right? You can be nice to kids, and they're not going to hire you for a job. In that way, there is nothing materially to be gained from children. They're takers, these kids. They will suck you dry. They're expensive. They force you to babysit us every other day. <laughs> Buying things that you never thought would ever be found in your home. Most of which having to do with body function. But I'm digressing now from my point. The world doesn't see the... the, the there's no... There's no monetary value to a child. And so the world doesn't value that then, them then. But Jesus says to value a child shows that you are seeing people through the eyes of God. Why does a child have value in the eyes of God? Because it, that child bears the image of the most high God. His eye is upon them. God loves children, and when we value them and care for them and, and meet their needs and treasure them, we are showing that we are, it, through that, we are treasuring the one whose image they bear. And that's why Jesus says, you care for the child, you're caring for me. And not just me, but the one who sent me, who is God the Father. Kids are a litmus test of whether we are seeing people as people or simply seeing them for what they have to bring or give to us. Now, I still haven't defined what a biblical father is, so let me, let me get, do that right now. What does it mean to be a biblical father? Here it is. A biblical dad provides, loves, and nurtures the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of his child with the goal of the child's faith and maturity in Christ. And I'm, I'm going to unpack a little bit of that later in this message. Now, dads, let's look at that definition. And what emotion comes into our hearts as we look at that? I feel terror, or at least anxiety. Why? How am I going to accomplish that? How is little old me with all my frailties, all my inconsistencies, how am I ever going to be a biblical dad like this. Well, that's why each of these points begins with, by God's grace. What man here is sufficient in his own strength to bring a child into faith and maturity in Christ? None of us are. Being a biblical dad is a supernatural thing. It is God's grace through us to our children. And that's the only way that it can ever happen. Also takes the bragging out of it. So if, if all your children are New Testament scholars and missionaries in strange places, please don't stick your chest out and go, oh, wow. that's God's grace in you, right? So there's no bragging in this, but there should be a lot of humility. 
Second longing, by God's grace, to love her despite her and my imperfections. I am somebody, I like to, I like to figure things out. Maybe some of you are, are like me. There are some people that things happen to them. I try to be on the other side where I make things happen. I'm, I like to think proactively about things. Problems in my mind, for the most part, are to be solved. They're not simply to be chafed and angered over. They, I like to fix things. This, this can be a, you know, a little problematic. I'm learning in marriage when I want to fix things and I need to just listen. In marriage, listening is like fixing. It's strange, isn't it? All the men are like, I can't nod my head at all right now. Or I'm in trouble. <laughs> Indeed. So I'm on the proactive side of things. I try to steer things towards desirable outcomes. One of the things that I found in, during our pregnancy was that I felt helpless to manage or to steer what was coming out in a desirable outcome. That was a really confusing sentence, but let me see if I can fix it. <laughs> Once we found out that we were pregnant, well, actually, shortly, we had a, we had a, I'll just tell you, we had a doctor's appointment, a follow-up doctor's appointment. And we sat down with the doctor, and she began to lay out scenarios that could happen. Talked about our age, talked about statistics, began to talk about things like Down syndrome, autism. You, know, you begin to look at all the things that can go wrong physically in a child and how the mystery of how all that, those chromosomes and everything are in there doing their thing. There's a lot that can go wrong. And it dawned on me, I never thought about this as a, as a pregnant couple, we, we didn't know what was coming out. You don't know what's coming out. Now we come to find out it was a girl, we knew that much. But who knows what life would mean once this child was born. And I will tell you, I, oh, for all these years that we have within even our family, uh, a, a child that was born with special needs, I've I've looked at families that have the child in the wheelchair or, um, you know, there are, uh, like recently I was, I was at a conference and there was a, a woman there with her adult autistic child and I watched her kind of run around with headphones on all the time and, and I just, I looked at those couples and those situations with a whole fresh set of eyes because we've been praying during our pregnancy, God, we pray for health, we pray for you know, that you would form her fully within. We prayed all those prayers. And so did they. So did they. And when that child was born, they had all the hopes and all the excitement that Jennifer and I had. And what was born was a special child with a special need. And my heart changed over this pregnancy in ways that I think are good and that need to in terms of compassion for families that uh, are loving children, that it requires special grace and special patience and endurance to do. If you were to talk to them, they, would, they love that child as much as anybody loves any child. But we live in a fallen world where things are imperfect, right? And further, I would even say this, Maybe we should just rethink a little bit what normal is, right? What's normal? And not idealize the perfect body or the perfect child. And to realize that every child that's born is a, is a gift from God. And so I just want to say we have, we have some, maybe many, in our own congregation. And maybe you've never heard anything from the pulpit about the unique situation that you are in. But you're hearing it today. We want you to know that our hearts are with you and we value and treasure the special love and grace that you extend to your child. And we want to be a church that helps you in that. Amen, congregation.
Now, I focused on the physical, but there's so much more to be said about the emotional and the spiritual. But I don't have time. I'll move on to my third longing. By God's grace, to cultivate biblical femininity by modeling robust masculinity. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I have a little girl. She's cute as can be, isn't she? She's a total cutie patootie. You just want to love her and hug her and kiss her all over. This little girl is going to grow up in a world that is trying very hard to minimize what it means to be a feminine woman and trying to blur the distinctions between genders and to say that that doesn't really matter. And yet this Bible, in Genesis 127, which I've already read, says that those genders are not social constructs. They're not things that we just came up with. They are grounded in the eternal purpose of God. In fact, I believe that God made us male and female to reflect the diversity and unity within the Godhead. So when we play with gender roles and say that they don't matter, we're actually blaspheming the character of God, who is diverse and who is unified. We find in the Bible that the Bible wants men to be men and women to be women. You can look at 1 Corinthians 11 as an example of this, where Paul is talking about, he basically says this, women need to be feminine and men need to be masculine right down to the way that they present themselves. And there's cultural language in there about dress and that kind of thing. But the underlying principle is that their masculinity is a wonderful thing and femininity is a wonderful thing. And one of the tasks of the parent is to cultivate gender role, gender treasuring. And in this case, for me with a daughter, feminine beauty. And I know... That in order for her to develop feminine beauty, she needs the protection of robust masculinity in the home. Because that provides a kind of protection under which that very delicate emotional and spiritual yet beautiful femininity can develop safely. In fact, one reason we have the problem we have in our culture today is the breakdown, I think, of the family, where girls are not relating to a biblical masculine father in a way that they can develop that feminine beauty. And so there's a kind of hardness about them and a harshness about them, which they almost have to do because dad's not there to protect them. I want to protect Kira Lee. I want to be the protector of the home. Don't mess with her, Okay. And you little boys that are already starting to get, no. No. I have a critical role to play. And the way this works, I think, is that masculinity and femininity by God's design in human personhood are complementary. Okay, they are complementary. One is the melody, one is the harmony, if you want to look at it that way. And in order for the harmony of femininity to be its beautiful, lilting self, it requires a very strong, masculine melody for that to happen. So that daughters become femininely beautiful when the dads are masculinely strong. Now the dads here and the men here are going, well, what does it mean to be masculinely strong? It has nothing to do with chest hair or football, okay? This is biblical masculinity. It is tender and loving headship that shows itself through sacrificial servant leadership in the home. Did you get that? Can I read that again? It's so good while we're here on this point. Let me read it again. It is tender and loving headship that shows itself Not through domination, not through yelling, I'm the king of the castle. On Father's Day, that's the one exception to that. King of the castle on that one day. Um, And you'll notice that I timed the birth perfectly, right after Mother's Day and right before Father's Day. Just saying. Uh, 
Let me read this again. Biblical masculinity is tender and loving headship that shows itself through sacrificial servant leadership in the home. Men that are married here, that is what we're called to. We are to be tender warrior leaders in our home. And we express that by serving our wives and our children. Single gals, can I just say to you, as you think about the kind of man that you might want to marry, do not look at his biceps or his bleached teeth. You want a guy who is going to lead, love, and serve in your home. And that future daughter that you are anticipating maybe having, her identity and personhood is largely going to be wrapped up with how well he does that. We can talk more about that, but when dads do that, their daughters don't have to go looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, there are exceptions, and there are great dads and great parents, and there's no guarantees with children. We all know that. But generally speaking, a loving, leading, masculine, biblical father creates an identity in the daughter whereby she feels safe. This relates to the next longing that I have. This is number four. By God's grace to be a godly example to her. To be a godly example to her. You know, we believe in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in all things. God is sovereign even in salvation. But we also believe that God works through means in order to accomplish that. Which is why we send missionaries around the world and pray for them. Why we're sending our young people on these mission trips that you saw on the slide earlier. It's why we're doing mission them. We're not just sitting back and going, well, God is sovereign, so whoever will be saved will be saved. He works through means in order to accomplish that. And there is probably no better means by which... People come to faith in Christ than Christian parents having Christian children. Not having Christian children, they have sinners. But they disciple them in the gospel and they come to faith in Christ. How many of you here, with a raise of hands, grew up with at least one Christian parent in the home? Would you raise your hand right now? Safe to say a majority, right? I rest my case. How did you come to know about Jesus? And how did you come to know about the gospel that in spite of the fact that you're cute and and get all B's at school, you are a sinner and that you stand before God with a need and that Jesus came and met that need by dying on the cross for your sins and that there is forgiveness to be had by faith in Jesus. How did you come to know that? Because you had a parent in the home who prayed with you. Maybe took you to children's ministry things, youth group, who talked to you, did devotions after dinner, who sought in some way to be a spiritual influence in your life. It is probably the best way to make disciples is to have children and lead them to faith in Christ. And that's what I want to do with with Kira Lee. I want to see her come to faith in Jesus. That That is my big goal. And I've preached this. Many of you come here a long time. You know, I've preached it. I pound the pulpit. We need to be a godly example. We need to live out our faith in the home, right? All of this. I, I was a youth pastor for five years. I challenged parents, man, I, we, I can only do so much. We need you to be living out your faith in the house. And, and uh, I've, I've preached sermons on this. But guess what? Now it's my turn. That's an easy sermon to preach. It's a little harder to live, isn't it? A little harder to live. And this poor girl, Kira Lee is going to hear hundreds, maybe thousands of my sermons. And she's going to see me up here pontificating about this, that, and the other, telling all these people the way that things ought to be, what the Bible says, calling, all that. She's going to sit there, you know, and just listen to all of that. But there's going to be a massive difference. She is going to see me behind the scenes. She's going to know me for who I really am. And it's hard to fake out kids, isn't it? Kids don't judge us by, don't judge our faith by what they see on Sunday. 
Like right now, I look around this room, you look like, most of you look like you haven't sinned in weeks. (laughs) What a godly group of people. Amazing, wonderful Christians. It's just so fantastic. You know, if I was to look at all of you right now, I I would say all your kids, it must be like, you know, just heaven on earth to be in your home. Why? Because we're so godly on Sunday. It's harder to live that out during the week, isn't it? And our children, they're, I, they're always watching these kids. Okay, they're always watching. And the hypocrisy radar is on high, isn't it? And one of the reasons, sadly, that second-generation children do not turn out so well spiritually is that they are seeing their parents day after day. And one of the challenges I feel with now being a parent to Kira Lee is that I, I mean, I can't just preach it. I got to live it. I've got to live it. Why? Because I want to see her come to faith in Christ. Now, I need to do it ultimately as obedience to the Lord, as an act of worship in my own personal walk. That's the first priority. But there's a whole other thing that's going on now as a parent, isn't there? This child, this precious child. I do not believe that I can save her. I know many very godly and, in my judgment, good Christian parents whose children have rejected the faith. There are no guarantees when it comes to kids. So I can't save her, but I can sure do a lot to damage her desire to believe. So to the best that I can to be consistent in my godly example in the home, and when I am inconsistent, to seek her forgiveness. Parents, I think one of the common things that we ought to be saying to our kids is, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for the harsh word, for the angry word, for the lack of love? These kinds of things that they see. That's how you remove the hypocrisy. It's not by acting like it's not there, but by acknowledging it. And then applying the gospel to yourself, the same one that you want them to apply to their own life. Which really leads to my final longing. This is number five. By God's grace, my ultimate goal for her is faith and maturity in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian parent? Here's Ephesians 6. Paul gives a command to fathers. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but rather bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Dads, if there's a theme verse that we need to have, there it is. There's something not to do, and there is something to do. What do we not do? We don't do what is our natural tendency, which is to beat our chest, to exercise that headship and authority in a kind of domineering way that leads to very angry children. Don't do that. Rather... We are to bring them up. And you see that kind of parenting, nourishing language there. Raise them up. Bring them up in the nurture and in the instruction of the Lord. And the idea there is that we are Christian dads who are teaching Christian truth to children that we very much want to be Christ followers. That's the big goal. I need to teach her the gospel. I need to teach her the law. I need to teach her how to live a life that pleases the Lord. I need to give her very much the idea that the most important thing in my life is the Lord. For her to see that in my enthusiasms. For her to see that in the things that I give my time to. These eyes that are always watching. She is going to know what really matters in my life. And what I hope she sees really matters in my life. Is, is the Lord and a life lived to his glory. I want it to be an all-about-him home. And I want her to be an all-about-him daughter who lives that with her life. The big thing I want is I want her in heaven. And I will tell you, even as a young daddy, the thought of her not being there is more than my little daddy heart can handle. 
So this is a big thing. And parents, I want to ask you, what are your kids getting the idea is the big thing in your life that you really care about? Have you allowed some other thing, some other goal to quietly become the thing that your house really revolves around? I want to say, I've said this for years, I'm going to say it again. Your daughter, no matter how talented she is, is not going to be an Olympic gymnast. And your son, no matter how talented he is in this little town here, Crown Point or Northwest Indiana, 99.99999% chance, he is never going to play in the NBA, the NHL, or the NFL, or any other league that begins with N. Yeah, I'm talking about your kid. Because you're thinking right now, that's all the other kids, but my kid's special. No. She's not. And he's not. Those things are so unlikely. But I will tell you one thing. Your kid is going to die someday and go either to heaven or hell. What does that say about where our priorities ought to lie in terms of what we really want from them? What matters? Valedictorian or eternal life? Athletic success or eternal life? Getting into the right college or eternal life? Amazing trombone player in marching band that takes third at regionals or eternal life? And our window of time with our children is so small. I've had parent after parent after parent. It goes so fast. You can't believe how quickly she'll be off and going to college before you know it. The time is so short. Why? Focus on secondary things that in the end don't matter. To the loss of enthusiasm, energy, money, passion, and pursuit of cultivating within them a heart for God and a life lived to his glory. Now to that end, I want to read something to you that is actually a little risky for me to do. And I do it with a little bit of trepidation. And I want to ask a personal favor that none of you bring this up to her ever. Okay? And I I mean that. One of the things that during our pregnancy that we spent a fair amount of time doing is getting all of our legal affairs in order. And doing the very best that we could to have everything in place should the tragic happen because the tragic does happen. And so we wanted to make arrangements for her. We have guardianships lined up. We have legal papers all drawn up. We've got all the things that, at least the best that we can, everything is set up for her if Jennifer and I died today. And I would urge you, love your children enough to take care of business, okay? So that's a side note. But that's one of the things that we've been doing. So we've got this big, thick document. We've signed all these papers And one of the things that are in the stack of of documents is a letter that Jennifer and I uh, have written uh, to her. Uh, We wrote it to her before we'd actually named her. Um, But I want to read our letter uh, because I think it really synthesizes this point of what really matters as a Christian parent. So here it is. May 2nd, 2013. Dearest daughter we love. This note is a love note. We haven't met you yet. We feel you all the time, kicking and dancing in the womb. We've giggled and wondered so many times at your antics and gymnastics. All the while, we dream about who you are, what you will be like, and who you will become. We are also making arrangements for you. This world and life are filled with uncertainties, and we want to care for you in the unknowns. Our confidence is in God and his love for you even while we take practical steps to meet your needs once you arrive. If you are reading this note, it means that we are in heaven. We will eternally love you from there. It is our deepest desire to see you there someday. Our firm belief is that Jesus is the Savior of all men and died on the cross bearing our sin. We have placed our trust in Jesus and are now experiencing the indescribable joy of eternal life with God. We want you to know the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and transformed life, which is and forever will be our greatest joy. 
A few verses that we treasure are, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are convinced that salvation comes only by faith in Jesus. This must be your personal decision and faith. We have prayed for this throughout the pregnancy and will continue to pray for you until we die. It is our sincerest and most loving desire that you would embrace Jesus as your Savior and live your life to his glory. Nothing could be more joyous to us than to share God's love and goodness with you forever. Should God's providence mean our separation from you in life, we will never be separated from you in heart. We will always love you. This legal document is an expression of our love for you. We hope our real and eternal legacy in you will be your love for God, who alone loves you more than us. With all our love, Dad and Mom DeWitt. So I want to say, for every want-to-be father, and every almost father, and every just-became father, and every been a father a long time, the greatest desire that we have to have, and the goal that we have to maintain, is to reach our children for Christ. And that is my goal. That is my longing as a dad. And uh, I'm not the almost father now. She's actually here. She's here. And I'm just starting, and I have a lot to learn. I no doubt could learn much from most of you. But I think these longings are grounded in biblical truth. And I believe that every biblical father will want the same. So may our longings be accomplished and achieved in the lives of our children, for the glory of God. Amen.